We're looking this morning from Isaiah 11 of the return of the branch to use the figure that uh, Isaiah is using in this um, prophecy. You'll note the first thing in your bulletin outline is a statement about two comings, not one. Perhaps return might be a bit puzzling to you because we have been speaking in this series of the coming of Jesus Christ as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Now he's not the only prophet that certainly prophesies the coming of Christ, but we've been concentrating just in the book of Isaiah. And when we hear of coming, our minds generally go to the subject of Jesus' first coming, that is, Advent, by which we mean his incarnation, the time when the virgin was with child, gave birth to a son whom she named Emmanuel, prophesied in Isaiah 7, verse 11. Or again, a prophecy in chapter 9, verse 6 and following, concerning a child being born and a son being given. So we know, do we not, that since Isaiah in these texts is talking about conception occurring and a baby being born, and a child growing up to maturity, that he must be predicting the entrance of God's Son, Jesus, into our world for the first time. He enters as a baby. He is born a son. He matures as a child who is destined for some very great things. This same scenario is followed in our present text, but in the symbolism. In verse 1, chapter 11, Isaiah sees a stump of a tree, the trunk and branches long time removed, and yet of this decaying stump, he visions a shoot coming up, which in time becomes a branch, which in time is capable of bearing fruit. Now, that's the same scenario with shoot corresponding to baby, in the other prophecies, branch corresponding to the child growing up and bearing fruit corresponding to his adult responsibility and powers and achievements. So in symbolism, we're still talking about the same thing. But, but, after elaborating a bit on the character of Christ's kingdom, we studied that last week, uh, two weeks ago, I should say, in distinction from other kings and nations, that it was spirit-led, a righteous and just rule, verses 2 and following, we come to verse 6. And I have to say that verse 6 seems completely disjointed. The wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. What has that got to do with the ministry of Christ? Well, there have been attempts made by commentators to try to harmonize these statements, verse 6 and following, with the ministry of Christ on earth, but to do so they have had to go to some pretty weird gymnastics to accomplish it, mostly by spiritualizing this text and saying 
that here Isaiah speaks allegorically, which means that these various animals mentioned here, they stand for something spiritual. In other words, they would have us believe that these are not to be taken for real animals, but only as symbols representing various spiritual truths. One being that the rule of Christ will bring peace, will bring peace on earth by removing the animal nature and animosity and hatred from men when they come to know the Lord. Now, you know, when we hear something like that, the first thing I would say, there is some plausibility in understanding that, because, for example, we know that when a person comes to salvation in Christ, he becomes a new creation, does he not? His old self, his old evil, selfish ways of thinking and acting begin to fade away, and he, being forgiven of God, now becomes a forgiver of those who wronged him. Hate is replaced with love, selfishness with generosity, making decisions unilaterally with no concern for others. That all changes to making decisions jointly with all concerns addressed, and so on and so on. So some of this is very feasible. No student of the Bible would deny that these things are taught with regard to the wonderful work of Christ associated with his first coming, with saving our souls from ourselves. But that's not the issue. The issue is this. Does this passage in Isaiah teach these things? Does the Bible teach these things? No questions that it does. Does Isaiah 11, 6 and following teach these things? Well, that's where the question mark is. Well, some would say, who cares if it's taught elsewhere in the Bible? Well, I care and you should care. If you don't care, then the Bible can become a tool to teach anything that people want it to say. And indeed, this happens at times. People can make the Bible say what they want it to say because they read into it what they think. Frankly, there are much clearer passages in the Bible to teach about the transformation of the sinful heart when confronted with the gospel of Christ than this passage in Isaiah 11 which talks about ferocious animals living at peace with one another. Here's the rule. There's a rule of interpreting the Bible, and it's safe to follow this rule, and it is this. Under, when you're reading a text, understand the text literally, unless, here it is, here's the caveat, unless the author himself gives some indication that he is speaking figuratively. And we have books of the Bible, whole books of the Bible. Revelation is probably the one that comes to mind. We know John, in writing the Revelation, speaks figuratively. Because you've got grotesque things with eyes and swords coming out of mouths and, and all of those kind of things. He's teaching spiritual truths allegorically. So there are figures in the Bible 
And by the way, we have one of them in our text. Uh, Isaiah talks of a person using the figure of a branch. Well, that's a figure of speech. A tree limb is not a person. But in Jesus' growth and expansion as a ruler under whom all of the nations will gather, a tree with a canopy of branches conveys a certain descriptive image which helps us as readers to visualize what Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. But when we come to verse 6 and following, there is no indication by Isaiah that the wolf stands for something other than a wolf, or the leopard, or the goat, or the lion, and in all of this, a child that will lead them. Isaiah is simply giving a prediction concerning the results of what will occur when the Christ comes, verse 4, to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, when with the breath of his lips, his words, he will slay the wicked. When does this occur historically? Well, all of this occurs at the second coming of Christ when he returns in power and great glory. Now, there are many scriptures that attest to this. Jesus' own prediction, let me read it for you. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man, that was his favorite title for himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. He really is identifying with us. So and he wants us to know that. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. He's talking about his second coming. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Matthew 24, verse 30 and following. Now compare that with our text, verse 12. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. You see what's being described? Jesus himself is picking up on this theme. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen when I come back. Again, the writer of Hebrews makes a contrast between Jesus' first coming and his second in these words in Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, think of the cross, to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying this. First coming, humiliation, poverty, suffering, death for the Christ. Second coming, judgment of the wicked, consummation of salvation for the believer, a display of the might and power of Christ the Lord. Again, Paul in speaking of the resurrection as it, and its results says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, or those that are in Christ, all 
will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, speaking of his resurrection, then, now notice this, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. For he is king, for, for he has put everything under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and following. Now, brethren, that's just a, a teensy small sampling of the dozens and dozens of scripture which speak of Christ's second coming and how it will be characterized. And I think even with the reading of just those three texts, you can see that the second coming is radically different from the first. Now, how do we unravel the mystery? In returning to our text, it's important for you to know that it is not, it is not unusual for the Old Testament prophets to speak of the first coming of Christ in one breath and of the second coming of Christ in the very next breath. And I say that, it's as though the Spirit of God directs them to the subject of the Son of God coming among men. Having predicted His advent and some of the characteristics associated with that, the Spirit goes on to compel them, as Paul Harvey used to say, to tell the rest of the story. The story has not been told until we read the ending. You know, some people, when they get a new book, let's say a, a mystery novel or something like that, uh, they can't stand the suspense, so they cheat. <laughs> they flip to the back uh, of the last chapter, thumb through the book to see how the story ends. Well, there is certainly mystery involved in the coming of God's Son among us, and it's not unusual for the reader to want to know how the story ends. In fact, since we are dealing here with history in the making, and not simply a fictitious novel, it's very important for us to know how the story ends. You see, the story concerns you, and it concerns me. I want to know where I fit, into the scheme of things. I want to know what is in store for me as a child of God. I want to know if I am among those whom the branch king will strike down and slay with the words of his mouth, or if I am among the elect nation gathered from the four quarters of the earth. Oh, I want to know more. I want to know what awaits me in the new world. I want to know what changes will take place and how men and women will live together under Christ's rule, a real theocracy. I want to know what happens to sin in men and sin in me and if there will be any difference between the world that is and that world that is to come. The people of Isaiah's day were no different. And so Isaiah, no less than a number of the other prophets, having spoken of the birth, the childhood, the maturity of the branch, immediately and with not much of a transition goes on to describe the world to come 
when the branch king returns as the banner of the peoples and rallies the nations to him, ushering in a glorious place of rest, verse 10 of our text. This, I believe, is what we have described in verse 6 and following. The animals described are real animals living on a real earth, populated by real human beings, including children and infants. Now, that brings us to the second main point of what I want to say today. And that is, there is need for restoration of the earth and the way things are by Jesse's branch, by this Messiah, this Savior. How so? Because paradise, let us remember, has been lost. To see this, we have to begin at the beginning, that is in the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. After God had created the world and populated it with animals, He created man in His own image, and the Bible says God saw that all that He had made was very good. Genesis 1 Verse 31, God does nothing but what is good. And so the work of his hands was very good. In this garden paradise, there were trees, lots of trees, fruit trees, producing good food for Adam and Eve. They ate their fill. The animals were present of every imaginable species. And the Bible says, I'm reading scripture, that God brought them to the man, Adam, to see what he would name them. God brought, wow, the animals to him to see what they would name, he would name them. And so, the man gave names to all the livestock, think of livestock, uh, probably goats, calves, pigs, sheep, the birds of the air, ravens, bluebirds, robins, yes, but also eagles, hawks, vultures, And all the beasts of the field, think elephants, zebras, antelope, deer, wolves, leopards, lions, and bears. Genesis 2, verse 19 and following. Just think about that. God brought the animals, kind of like pre-Noah, right, to Adam to see what Adam would call them. So obviously, in this garden paradise, it was a time of peace and harmony in creation. The animals were not afraid of Adam, nor he of them. What is more, there was nothing to fear. The beasts of the field, as well as what we sometimes call birds of prey, were not preying on anything, because their food was not each other, but rather the grains and grasses which grew uninhibited by weeds or thorns or thistles. There was no bloodshed, accidentally or otherwise. No one killed another, and man and animals alike dwelled in perfect harmony. This is the way it was in the beginning, in the garden of God under the canopy of the forest paradise of Eden. But all of this ended when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed his edict concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their disobedience brought anarchy to the creation and death entered 
creation. Death entered, bloodshed entered into a world's existence for the first time. God cursed Adam and Eve as their sin had cursed the environment. And suddenly, all of creation was changed and paradise was lost. It was lost. Genesis 3 verse 14 words it this way. God speaking to the serpent. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. See the curse has already taken place. Yes, the serpent was cursed. He was called caused to crawl on the belly and eat dust all his days. But God mentions that the livestock and the animals took on a new nature. What was that new nature? Wild. Wild. Woman for her part in the sin was cursed with pain in childbirth and subordination to her husband's rule. Women's lib people don't like that, but it's part of the curse. Adam, for his part, was doomed to work in soil, which now would fight his every effort to grow food. Thorns, thistles, weeds would choke his efforts, and instead of fruit trees yielding their fruit, now Adam would have to labor hard by the sweat of his face to survive. No early morning trick through the orchard picking your breakfast. Yet still, in the end, death Death would win. Death would win. God said to Adam, You will return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3, verse 19. The animals became afraid of man. Man became afraid of the animals. But you know the first bloodshed recorded in scripture was that of Cain. The firstborn of Adam and Eve taking the life of Abel, his brother. Sin does this, you know. Sin ruins paradise. Sin brings into our lives disruption of relationships. It instills hatred and fear, and jealousy, and greed, and all those things which make for friction, and tension, and trouble between people. And the world has been that way ever since. So, what we have now is creating a creation waiting patiently for renewal. We read that in the Romans 8 text. The creation, including mankind, has been in a cursed state ever since Adam and Eve's sin. Our first parents passed on their sinful nature to every human being down line. And that's all of us. We cannot escape it. Here's the way Paul writes it. Sin entered the world through one Man, ooh, quite an indictment. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Death wasn't there before sin. 
The evolutionists are wrong. Survival of the fittest and all that business. Dog eat dog. There was no death until sin entered and death through it. And in this way, writes Paul, death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. The curse of God is on mankind for sin. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. That's why there is death. Such a thing as death. Such judgment of God is justified because, as we read on in Romans 3, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Think of the stench of that. Their tongue practices deceit. The poison of vipers is in their lips. He's talking about men, you and me. Poison of vipers is in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. There was on the news this week a one and a half year old toddler. And I guess it was on YouTube or however they discovered it. But anyway, the parents teaching the kid how to curse. Use the F word, the N word, and all the other words as though that was really good education. That's what we need to do as parents with our kids. What kind of a warped mind would go in that direction? I'll tell you what kind of a warped mind. Our warped minds, our sinful minds, apart from God's grace. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's it. That's the problem. Defiant to the bitter end. You know. That's Romans 3, 12 through 18. The grand indictment of sinful humanity. Now the animal kingdom along with man and the plants was cursed because of man's sin too. Paul's description, we know, here he, here's the way he says it, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Romans 8, verse 22 and following. Now a ray of hope shines here. Paul indicates that we are waiting for something. Indeed, all creation is waiting for something. And then he identifies the something that everybody is waiting for. He lists it. Our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Note, not just the redemption of our souls because of being forgiven in Christ, but the redemption of our bodies. Bodies that are bound to sin and which suffer because of sin with groans and pains. This is so much the case that in the previous chapter Paul cried out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Whoa! Not just my soul. My body is groaning in this sinful, 
cursed world. And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7 verse 24 and 25. What about the wild animals? The wolf living with the lamb. The leopard lying down with the goat. The calf and the lion together. A child leading them. Verse 6 of our text. Animals which now in a sinful and unredeemed environment are mortal enemies to one another are said to be coexisting in peace without one trying to kill and eat the other. Just this week, 74-year-old man was gored by a buck, white-tailed buck, a deer. It was in the rut season. They're saying, boy, you don't want to mess we don't normally think of, of deer. Oh, little baby, oh, little baby, gored anybody. Well, baby with horns gored this 74-year-old man. Got him in the eye. Oh, how terrible would that be? I'm sure he lost his sight. Could have lost his life. Wild means wild. This is the result of Christ's coming that all of this ends. When as the branch he extends the canopy of his favor and peace over all the cursed creation. And he restores it to paradise status as once existed in the garden of God. Romans 8 links this with the completion of the salvation of God's people. Listen, the creation, this is what he says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it, God and his curses, you see, because of man's sin. In hope that the creation itself, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. When we're redeemed, creation is redeemed. And the animal world is waiting with anticipation for the coming of Christ because when Christ comes, God's people will enter into their full freedom from sin and its curse, and so will all of creation because they're linked. It was because of man's sin that the creation was cursed. So when man is liberated and we enter into our freedom, the curse on creation is lifted. And that is why the Bible describes heaven as a place with no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain. Gone will be sin and along with it all the curses of sin and the suffering associated with sin. You have aches and pains this morning? I do. <laughs> Been moving and moving. I'm tired of moving. I'm sore from moving. My hands are suffering from their arthritic. Latent arthritis has decided to come up and bite me. <laughs> That's because of sin. The day is coming when the beasts of the field will be at peace with each other once again. And our children, once again, will not be endangered by leopard or cobra. The lion will eat straw like the ox, verse 7 of our text. No more carnivorous appetites. The beasts will lose their wild nature and go back to grazing grain. 
But there is yet a more important restoration, and that is the restoration of sinful humanity. It is the sinfulness of man which accounts for the wars and rumors of wars which predate the Lord's return. And boy, we're seeing a lot of that in the, in the Middle East. It's our sin that accounts for hatred and anger and malicious behavior. It's our sin that accounts for immorality and murder, which every culture in this world practices. This is all destined to cease once Jesus has returned. For you see, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and in his place, it will be a place of rest. And it will be glorious, verse 10 of our text. Peter describes it this way. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It is unannounced, unexpected. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There's global warming worthy of the name. And then he goes on, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And the answers, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. But in keeping with his promise, Isaiah 11 would be one of these promises, wouldn't it? We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience, His seeming delay, means salvation. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Woe to the mockers. Ho, ho, ho. Jesus has been promised to come back for over 2,000 years. He isn't here. Ho, ho, ho. Must be that the Bible is foolish. Must be that the prophets didn't know what they were talking about. Peter says, ho, ho, ho to you, fool. Don't you know that the delay, as you see it, of Christ's coming means salvation? For people, maybe you, maybe you. Let me ask it pointedly, are you ready for the return of Christ? Isaiah foretold it, Paul explained its significance to all of creation, and Peter anticipates it, and he warns us, be ready for it. The branch on the fruit tree, verse 1, is a fitting symbol for the one who brings us back to the garden of God where peace once ruled between God and man and every animal was in harmony with man and with each other. And in Isaiah 4 verse 2, the prophet describes it this way, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. The Lord will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. We just read about that from Peter. And over all the glory, over all the glory, I'm reading scripture, will be a canopy. A canopy. 
It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. Note, humanity is restored in those left in Zion, the remnant. Those who among the masses of humanity surrender and have surrendered to Christ's salvation. I have to ask it personally. Is Christ your shelter in the time of storm? Has he cleansed you from your blood guiltiness? Have you run to him for forgiveness and restoration? Has the fire of God's judgment passed over you because Jesus is your canopy of protection? Say it this way, the branch of Jesse is not a baby anymore. I get a little perturbed at Christmas time when the world gets all googa-gaga-googa-googa about the baby in the manger. The baby in the manger is speaking of his humility. And it is speaking of incarnation, God becoming one with us. A baby in the manger has grown into a powerful king. He commands your allegiance. He promises judgment. If you remain obstinate and defiant, you need to sue for peace. You need to surrender now and live. And begin living paradise with sins forgiven and hearts cleansed. And eventually when our bodies will be redeemed. And paradise lost will be paradise gained. Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers. He wrote a book in the Bible. It will be hard to find because it's only one page. <laughs> a book with one chapter. But what a chapter. He ends his wonderful little book with these words. Dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to save you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That's how he ends his book. What's he saying? Christ is coming again. And he's coming as a king. And you need to be ready. If you're in Christ today, if you've sought for his forgiveness and cleansing from sin, if you've repented of your sin, there's nothing to fear. Paul writes, there's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not now 
and not to come. Paul writes, God has not appointed us to wrath. Why? Because the wrath has been poured out in Christ, on Christ, on behalf of us. And we're trusting his work, not ours, to placate the wrath of God. Do you know Christ as Savior? Come today. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Isaiah 11. Thank you for the fact that the Holy Spirit led Isaiah not only to talk about Jesus' first coming, which was one of humility and suffering for himself as he bore our sorrows and was acquainted with our grief. But then he went on to describe what Christ will usher in at, at his second return. No more humility. No more taking the insults, mockery, whippings, and cursings of men. But coming as the king of kings and judge of judges before whom all must stand and give an account. May we be ready. And if we're in Christ and covered by his blood, we will be ready. And Dan's been talking to us in the adult class about this very truth. That if we're in Christ, we're safe and secure. And we need to lean on that and count on that. But I know in our church today and in our internet audience, there are those likely who have not settled their accounts with God. They're still playing games. They're still relying upon some form of human good works. Whereas Jesus, through Paul, says there's none good. None good. Not even one. We've all gone our way. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. Bring to us Jesus. Show us his cross and his work. Bring to us his forgiveness and cleansing, we pray. Firstly, for your glory, for you are glorified in every soul that's saved. But then secondly, for our good, that we may anticipate your coming with joy and not fear. Amen. Our, our closing hymn is...